Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Too black, too strong. People are set out to do great rap records. Too black, too strong. Memorable rap songs. But we set out to say we're going to make the greatest rap album of all time. Back in the late 80s, Public Enemies' It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back was unlike anything hip-hop had ever heard. Led by Chuck D and Flavor Flav, they set out to make the hip-hop version of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, one of the most important politically aware records of all time. I'm from New York, melting pot of a whole bunch of ideas. And the turbulent, crazy 60s was an education in itself. Having these discussions with people who were just like me, not thinking that these thoughts were out of left field, just manifested into me being able to listen, watch, observe. Chuck's lyrics are fearless. He introduced the spirit of the 60s Black Power movement into hip-hop, blaming the CIA for the deaths of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, mocking the 4th of July and the idea of Black Americans serving in the military. He takes on the crack epidemic, and shouts out the Black Panther Party. The revolution will not be televised. And the music in Nation of Millions was just as powerful. Hank Shockley, a key member of Public Enemy's production team, The Bomb Squad, was willing to take risks that nobody else was taking in hip-hop. They layered sample after sample on top of each other and created a dramatic, completely new sound. A lot of musicians didn't respect the work that we were doing. And so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to make that statement so loud and so bold, because we wanted to prove that a DJ was more of a musician or just as much as a musician as a guitar player or a keyboard player or a drummer. The result was an album that even 30 years later still sounds like a revolution and feels as fresh and as relevant as the day it was recorded. When Rolling Stone first put out its 500 Greatest Albums of All Time in 2003, it became the magazine's most read list ever, as well as the most argued over. But a lot can happen in 17 years. New artists arrive, tastes change, history gets made and remade. So earlier this year, we asked more than 300 artists, critics, and people in the industry to send us their 50 favorite albums. We got ballots from Beyonce, Billie Eilish, Stevie Nicks, members of U2, and the result is a list that's more modern and more diverse. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, where each week we break down an entry on our new list. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone. And in this episode, public enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. 
It's easy to forget how young hip-hop is. The genre was born back in the early 70s, but no rap albums even existed until 1980. It was an industry driven by singles, which could be recorded and released much faster than albums. So hip-hop was evolving quickly, maybe faster than any form of popular music before it. And that's the world Public Enemy was born out of. Here's Rolling Stone senior writer Brian Hyatt with the rest of the story. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back, built on Public Enemy's first album, Yo Bum Rush the Show. That was the one that introduced the world to the imposing presence of Chuck D and the antics of Flavor Flav. The production on that one was mostly drum machines, synthesizer, and live guitar. Kind of in the spirit of the group's heroes, Run DMC, Chuck D said that he was going for the arena rap sound of that group's Raising Hell. Hip-hop was moving really fast though back then. After that album was delayed by almost a year, the beats and the flow on Yo Bum Rush the Show already sounded a little old school. I think Bruce Springsteen came out that year. So that pushed the Beastie Boys, who was supposed to come out in the summer, in October of 1986. We get pushed back into 1987. We're like, what the fuck? And by that time, rap had totally transformed. Drum machines were replaced with samplers, which allowed producers to pull beats and sounds off of classic soul records. And MCs like the great Rakim, of Eric B and Rakim, were changing the way rappers sounded by going off the beat, bringing new layers of complexity to hip hop. That super 80s flow was about to be gone forever. It was Rakim who inspired Public Enemy to essentially reinvent themselves on the first song they recorded for what became Nation of Millions. That song was called Rebel Without a Pause. So we said, listen, our stuff sounds dated, right? Nobody knows us. We got to be able to jump with this flow and style. It was our Hail Mary into the end zone. It was like, yo, man, we're going to write a song for now, our way. Noise, and that's Rebel Without a Pause. When we came up with that track in its earliest demo stage, Busta Rhymes, Dinko D, Charlie Brown, they happened to be in the studio. And I remember very clearly, every time we played it, these guys would start running around and wrecking shit. I'm like, calm the fuck down. And then we play it again, you know. And these guys are wrecking the room again, you know. So that's where we said, yeah, well, that's that's what it is. Now, how are we going to tackle it? So I went in and wrote to it and locked myself. I remember Hank coming to my house one and said, yo, man, let's go play some ball. And I closed the door on him <laughs> to finish writing. Like two days later, cut it, nailed it. Then I got scared because I was like, well, we recorded it, right? How are you going to make the noise work? You know, Hank's genius comes out and he goes in, mixes it. Cool. We master it. The mastering is right. I said, you know, I could die today, man. And this, this thing is going to live on. That's what we said. No one had ever heard production that sounded anything like this. Nothing as dense or as deliberately abrasive. This song had a horn squawk that sounded like a siren from an old James Brown record that looped throughout. The lyrics, too, were something totally brand new. In hip-hop, no one had ever heard anything as biting and political and super concise as no matter what the name, we're all the same pieces in one big chess game. All the same pieces in one big chess game. Yeah. And Hank Shockley, again, a key member of the Bomb Squad production crew, told me how Rebel Without a Pause set the template for the production process for the entire Nations of Millions album. I think Chuck had brought the record to my attention. And when I listened to it, I liked that first part of it, which was the sample, where it starts off and it goes like, Beep. I thought that that was a real cool kind of like 
intro. I didn't think that that would end up becoming the whole record. But then, you know, we would have these sessions where we'll have like me, Chuck, you know, Keith, maybe there, you know, or Eric. Each one of us were kind of band members and everybody took the role of different parts of the band. But for us, the different parts of the band meant one is on a sampler, one is on a turntable, one is working the cassette deck because even the cassette deck was part of the instrumentation as well. And all we're doing is making what we consider to be a sonic mess. And we're recording these things at the same time just so that we get a vibe. And then once you listen to the playback tape, you get a chance to hear a groove, something that happens. Making those records is this crazy combination of sonics and ideas of us forging them together. There were sort of endless innovations throughout It Takes a Nation of Millions. One of the biggest was a really simple thing. They just sped up the music. These are still some of the most up-tempo rap songs you'll ever hear. We realized that the tempo that we was at in making Yo Bum Rush the Show, when we played live in front of audiences, that we would bump up the beats per minute anyway, because it's like when a band is playing live, they're kind of like lean forward with their music. They're amped up, they're pumped up, so they're playing the music faster. So we developed a flow off of the beat change because nobody was messing around with our beat areas, like 109 beats per minute. So it was faster, it was quicker, it was aggressive. So, I mean, that's why even to this day, you can't mix Public Enemy records where the regular DJ set. It's just like, it's totally different attacks on the music. Another song they recorded early on for the album was Bring the Noise, originally meant for the soundtrack of this movie, Less Than Zero. Among other themes, Chuck D defends hip hop against rock and R&B fans who somehow considered it simply noise. That was a thing that you actually heard back then. And he also reaches out with this universalist message. Scott Ian, who was the guitarist from this metal band Anthrax, was a rap fan, and Chuck had spotted him in a, a Public Enemy shirt. So he shouted out the band on the song. Waxes for Anthrax, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, you know, Eric B, Run DMC, Anthrax. I said, yeah, fuck it. Music's all the same. We, you call us noise, but we're all music. I was glad that Scotty wore my shirt, and we have a, a brotherhood that continues strong to this day. And that was actually a big moment that would lead to a 1991 collaboration on this kind of thrashy Bring the Noise remake that became a really important landmark for rap rock. That entire genre probably wouldn't exist if not for that moment. You're blind, baby. You're blind from the facts on who you are because you're watching that garbage. In the spirit of that Anthrax moment, one of the most radical moves on an album full of them was to sample one of the heaviest metal bands ever, Slayer, on the track She Watched Channel Zero. I just got out of college and I took a job in a record store. And so, you know, I'm the only black kid that's in a heavy metal store. It was called Hard Rock at the time, but I got a chance to explore and hear some really, really cool artists that I thought was amazing. And one of the things that I loved about, you know, metal was the fact that they were very, very conceptual with their aggressiveness. So by adding the two together, you know, coming across with Slayer was just another addition to the aggressive sound that I thought that P.E. needed in order to have that kind of like edge. And it paid homage to our love and our interest in those heavy metal groups. Looking for that hero. 
she watched Channel Zero. They were using technology that now seems agonizingly limited. It was this brutal process, which makes the results just seem all the more miraculous. We could never recreate those records. And the reason why is because there's so many different techniques. For example, if one particular track is looping, then something else is being played on top of it, like let's say a kick and a snare. And now while that thing is looping, we're also having three different parts of that loop being played so that you could play variations within the loop. So you don't get this kind of like this loopy feeling where, where the record is just constantly repetitive doing the same exact thing. So one of the biggest reasons for having the bomb squad there was because the process was so tedious. Overall, Hank Shockley had one particular goal for this album. We used records to make records, and that was deliberate. You know, there was no drum machines that was done. There was no synths that was synthesized. There was no electric guitars. There was, you know, no analog gear whatsoever. That was kind of an anomaly. I wanted to do something that was a little bit unique and different, something that I didn't see people doing. We was kind of like anti-musicians in a way because a lot of musicians didn't respect the work that we were doing. And so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to make that statement so loud and so bold because we wanted to prove that a DJ was more of a musician or just as much as a musician as a guitar player or a keyboard player or a drummer. Public Enemy was the most politically driven group hip-hop had ever seen. For Chuck D, the black nationalist politics of Public Enemy were just the inevitable result of his background, and the simple fact that he was a little bit older than most other rappers at the time. My parents were young parents in the 60s and 70s that allowed me to be artistic and independent. Me, I'm turned out by conversations by Kwame Torre and Dick Gregory. I was able to vote on Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan. I vote for Angela Davis. I've come from the 60s. I'm from New York, melting pot of a whole bunch of ideas. And the turbulent, crazy 60s was an education in itself. And having these discussions with people who were just like me, not thinking that these thoughts were out of left field, just manifested into me being able to listen, watch, observe. And then when it came down to writing, I, I truncated it all up into what these things were about. The super dramatic song Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, which is about a, a black conscientious objector who refuses to fight for a quote land that never gave a damn, was actually based on the story of Chuck D's uncle. I remember 1967, I was there at the house when the Marines dropped a letter off. I picked up the letter and looked at it and I was like, you know, I'm seven years old, I can read a little something. He said, you have to go to the Marines to go fight in Vietnam. So he went from being a joyous high school graduate into getting ready to be drafted to go to war. And the look on his face was, what the fuck? That stuck in my head and used it later on. As Chuck D suggests on one track, he was convinced that the government took Public Enemy's militants seriously enough to actually start tapping his phone. Well, my telephone, it went off for a three-month period. Chuck nods to the Black Panther Party on the nation track Party Free Right to Fight. That's the party in the title. And he was actually hearing from one of the founders of that party in late night calls on that same phone. I had discussions with Huey Newton in the middle of the night because he's calling from the West Coast. I'm in New York. And he'd be like, hey, bro, how you doing, man? And we would just talk about these things. But for a while, between 11 and 1 o'clock, the phone would just go dead. So you report it to the phone company and they're like, no, your phone line is working. 
And I'm like, well, my phone line's working, and why is it dead between 11 and 1? And nobody ever gave a clear answer. So that's what made me write the song Loud in the Bomb. Have you forgotten that once we were brought here, we were robbed of our name, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our God. And many of us, by the way we act, we even lost our minds. Here it is. One track, Night of the Living Bassheads, is where the album's sample density rises to new heights. It's just packed in pieces of other songs. They even sample themselves from Bring the Noise. And this song's actually about the crack epidemic of the time. Some of their own rob a home while some shrivel a bone Like comatose walking around Please don't confuse this with the sound I'm talking about and this is where Chuck's brilliance come in, that he can he listen to the song and then say, you know what, I'm going to write something that's going to be based off of this concept and talk about the crackheads that are out in the streets late at night and smash that with the film Night of the Living Dead. And now we come up with this kind of like vibration of Night of the Living Bassheads. We're going to get on down now. I've never thought that the records were the greatest records of all time or any of these things, but it's about listening to the music and finding a way to get that music across emotionally and visually to an audience that can accept it. And lo and behold, it became to me the soundtrack for most people that were underprivileged, so to speak. Those that were forgotten about, the underdog, that record pretty much talked to them. For Chuck D in 2020, his group's classics are just as relevant as ever. You know, 30 years is a shorter time in real life than it is culturally. And the biggest difference is that people have been born and people have died in that interim. So you can't go around saying, haven't we gone through this before? We haven't. And you're always attacking systemic racism and white supremacy. And you're not going and saying, well, you know, everything is cool now. And we could just like lay back. That's the biggest difference, man. It's like you can't really lay back on white supremacy because it's so systemic. Universal will sell. Time for me to exit. Terminate Chuck D's been reluctant to accept praise for Nation of Millions over the years, but there's pretty much a consensus that it's one of the greatest albums ever made. Again, it's 15th on our list of 500. Here's what he had to say when I asked him about that. I don't take compliments, you know, to, I, I you know, I kind of like shy away from those. But it's the unmatched body of work from my team. Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, Eric Vietnam Sadler, Bill Stafford, Flavor Flav, Terminator X, DJ Johnny Juice Rosado. He's a turntablist that actually does the scratching on Bum Rush and also takes a nation as well with Terminator. These guys, we celebrate that forever, you know? I feel happy being part of a Sergeant Peppers type of thing. You know, to me, it's it's always going to be the mother load. It's the record that set it off on many different levels. Hank Shockley considers Nation of Millions a career high. For me, P.E. was something that I never wanted to try to reduplicate. I wanted it to be its own, to have its own niche and its own space in the musical landscape. This is why I didn't do another public enemy, so to speak. I don't think that there should be anything that compares to that. P.E. is my is my holy grail. We set out to do a what's going on. And then after we actually had it roll out, I said, well, that's exactly what we said it would be. It was like people were set out to do great rap records, memorable rap songs. 
but we set out to say we're going to make the greatest rap album of all time. So we were old enough to understand the resonance of that, and we took advantage of that. That's Chuck D and Hank Shockley talking to Rolling Stone's Brian Hyatt about their 1988 album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. I'll get into the album's legacy with some fellow Rolling Stone writers after this short break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Breakdown, baby. Welcome back. I'm now joined by my colleagues Jamil Smith and Brian Hyatt, as well as special guest and former Rolling Stone editor Nathan Brackett. Do you each want to introduce yourselves and tell us why you're here? Sure. I'll go first. I'm Jamil Smith, senior writer for Rolling Stone. And I'm here partially because I love Public Enemy. And this was a formative album in my youth. It came out when I was about, let's say, 11 years old. And I'm thrilled to be here to talk about it. I'll go next. Um, my name's Nathan Brackett. Uh, I was at Rolling Stone for many years. I left as executive editor in 2016. Since then, I've been uh, head of U.S. editorial at Amazon Music, uh, and I'm just an enormous Public Enemy fan. I interviewed Chuck D. actually for uh, the first go-round of the Rolling Stone 500 list uh, in 2004 uh, about the making of Nation of Millions, and I just think it's one of the most important records of all time. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt senior writer for Rolling Stone. I also host a podcast called Rolling Stone Music Now, and I've been a Public Enemy fan for a frighteningly long period of time, and they were you know, probably one of the, certainly one of the first five uh, hip-hop acts that got me into rap in the first place. You each mentioned a little bit of your relationship with the album, so I kind of want to go back if you remember the very first time you heard It Takes a Nation of Millions and how it made you feel. The first time I probably heard this album was <laughs> in my cousin's bedroom where I got most of my education and introduction to hip hop. He had a big, huge boombox. And that was really, you know, where I got introduced to a lot of 
you know, the early hip hop, Curtis Blow, you know, DJ Marley Marl, all these acts that honestly, in my, you know, sort of sheltered private school upbringing, I was not really introduced to. You weren't really hearing much more than Will Smith uh, <laughs> or uh, those kind of acts at the private school dances. You weren't hearing Public Enemy at those, at those events. So honestly, when I got exposed to this, it was an awakening for me. It really was. And I think really it's, it's important to note that this was an introduction for Public Enemy to the world. Their first album, you know, I, didn't, I wouldn't say it fell flat, but it wasn't them. It wasn't the public enemy that we got to know, that we have come to know, and that really is the personality that has persisted throughout the years. And this was what Chuck D, in, I think, in, intended for public enemy to be. I heard it at something called Governor's School, which was a, a summer program in New Jersey that brought together kids who were interested in public policy from all over uh, New Jersey, but the key part was all over New Jersey. So it was a, um, a much more diverse set of kids than I got to know in my stupid high school. So I was 14 or 15 and I heard a ton of music that I hadn't heard before. And my roommate at the time was a, a, a huge Public Enemy fan. It was 89, so I heard everything that was available from PE that summer. I had probably heard some of it before, but that was where it made a huge impact on me. And it, you asked how it felt to hear it, and I would say thrilling. And I still feel that now. There's something about the, the power of the production on this album and the power of Chuck D, both as an intellectual force and a musical force. And I still like get a huge kind of tingle and thrill from hearing him on the fast passages and, and bring the noise or something. It's, it's just incredible. I, I would say it's among the, the peak musical experiences I ever have listening to that. I first heard Public Enemies Nation of Millions uh, in college. And I remember taking home the record. And first of all, just thinking how amazing the record cover looked and what a complete vision of a group it was. And just how amazing and overwhelming the music was. So much information on that record. There's so much sound, so many layers of sound, so many references, so many rapid fire lyrics from Chuck. It sounded so unlike anything else at the time. It really was overwhelming. It, it was kind of, uh, it, it was such an oddball record and also um, a real vision of the future. And that's really what it felt like. You knew you were experiencing something completely different. Yeah, Nathan, to that point, one lyric in Bring the Noise always sticks out to me. It challenges not simply white listeners, but also black listeners and black establishment. I mean, it's saying like, you know, they call themselves black, but we'll see that they play this talking to black radio. And it's, it tells black radio, okay, this is something new. This is something harsh. This is something militant. Let's challenge, you know, you to think beyond your own boundaries, to embrace something new. And that's something that's going to challenge the establishment, the challenge the system. And we need to think in a revolutionary manner. And that, to me, was something that I, frankly, hadn't been doing at 11 years old. And it's something that I frankly haven't stopped doing since. 
And I want to cut back to the the list really quick and the placement on the list. It jumped from number 48 on the original list, where it was the only hip-hop album in the top 100, to number 15. Does that ranking feel right and appropriate for for where it is on the new list? I think so, because it's simply a pivotal piece of work that inspired later artists to be bold, not merely with their political speech, but also in terms of their artistry. I think that it inspired artists to speak out about the state of the world, both in their work, but also in the world itself. I think the measure of influence that Public Enemy had is going to really honestly be measured through generations. It's a worthy ascension in the list. You have a group here that doesn't merely measure its influence by its lyrical stylings or its, you know, its musical samplings, what have you, but its actual political influence is important in this world, and it continues to be important. And Chuck D remains an important political figure in the world. And so with this album being, I guess you could say, the mouth of the river, I think it's important for us as, as a magazine to recognize that. Brian, can you talk to me a little bit about what, for you, has made Chuck D one of the greatest rappers, and what is it about him that has been so enduringly influential? Well, first of all, his just his voice, the quality of it, the texture of it, the power of it, and the musicality in it. There's always melody embedded in there, even if it's not as blatant as the kind of melody that that rappers uh, more commonly use now. It's always sort of on key and incredibly nimble. And what he did on this album is he quickly not only adopted his flow to modernize it, given the musical developments that had happened very quickly between the release of their first album and when they started working on the second, he also just moved it forward. He's so jazzy and free. The previous album, you can hear him in those in that kind of like super 80s run DMC flow. And on this album, the tempos jump up and as tempos were jumping up more broadly in, in rap at the time. And Chuck just took to it so incredibly well. The lyrical content, of course, is a whole other story. And let's talk about Flavor Flav and how Flav and Chuck D have continued to play off one another ever since they began Public Enemy. Well, given that things are a little bit iffy with Flav in the group right now, I think it's a little bit sad. But, you know, going back to when things were better, I just think that it was a wonderful thing to see that Flav added such a joviality to a group that presented such serious topics in the way that it did. You have that first Flav single that's that's on this album, which gives us, you know, it's sort of a prelude to 911 as a joke on the follow-up album and and it allows for a certain playfulness in this in the midst of revolution. It reminds us that that there can be joy and a lightheartedness in the midst of this sort of like overbearing serious tone that Chuck presents. It's a really good and really necessary balance. And I would say that it's unexpected. It's something that you wouldn't necessarily think that you needed, but when you hear it, you know that you did. The only thing I would add to that really quickly is it it just speaks to the broadness of Chuck D's vision and the self-awareness he always had that he could take the step back from his own rapping and be like, you know, this could be too much if it's just me. I'm the straight man. I need something else. 
to to offset it. And he had the vision to do that as much as it's clear that, you know, Flav may have personally annoyed him for many, many years. I mean, we all saw it, you know, at the Rock and Hall of Fame induction, we saw Flav just like great on Chuck. And you can only imagine how many years that had been going on. But Chuck knew what he needed. I think that there's very few people in any genre who can objectively take a step back and look at themselves as the artist and be like, well, you know, I do this, but I need this. And I, I think that's amazing. One thing about Public Enemy and Chuck D, which I always loved, was how Chuck made the members of Public Enemy the superheroes of their world. He was the leader with the bass voice. Flavor Flav was the comic relief. He had the vision. He had that graphic artist's vision. Um, and I think you can also see a little bit of a, the influence of, of Funkadelic uh, in the same way that George Clinton had Bootsy Collins and the spaceship and the comic strips for those Funkadelic Parliament records. Chuck D had the same level of insight and saw that if you gave fans uh, this whole world that they could step into, it would make it even more exciting. And we brought it up a little bit earlier, but Chuck D has said that Public Enemy wanted to make the hip-hop version of what's going on, meaning a socially conscious concept album. And one of my favorite quotes from Chuck D is him calling hip-hop Black America's CNN. Jamil, can you help contextualize what was happening politically at the time, especially for Black Americans? Well, at the time, we're in the midst of the second term of Ronald Reagan. We are in the midst of the crack epidemic. We're in the midst of the AIDS epidemic, both of which are ravaging black America. And we're in the midst, of course, of a systemically racist country that is continuing to widen pay gaps and widen gender gaps and, and continuing to build towards the America that we see today. And so what I think we need to understand is that we need clarion calls through our artists. We need sometimes to be woken up. And at the time, you have folks like Spike Lee, you know, who literally at the time were saying, wake up. I mean, this was coming about a year after school days as Lawrence Fishburne ringing a bell at the end of the movie saying, wake up. You have two years after this, Public Enemy contributing Fight the Power to Spike's Do the Right Thing. This is a revolutionary period in black art in which artists are saying to America, wake up. This is a time in which black folks are being murdered by police in more conspicuous fashion. That is becoming a thing in which people are noticing a little bit more. So this is a time that uh, people are understanding that the civil rights movement never really ended. And folks like Chuck D are trying to help um, people understand that, you know, we don't need simply one leader, that leaders can come from, from our radio, they can come from our tape decks. It was pioneering of him and, and the group to say that we can be entertained and educated at the same time. And each of you sort of mentioned the idea of this album being a political awakening, being something that really helped kind of provide context for your own political thought. And I'm wondering where Public Enemy fits into this legacy of, of what you called the clarion calls to action earlier. Yeah. Well, I think certainly you have Marvin Gaye's What's Going On fitting within that legacy. You have Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It certainly fits part and parcel within the legacy of artists saying to the world, listen and pay attention to the injustices in the world. I think that in that respect, it fits as part of that legacy. I don't know if it is, in fact, 
the what's going on of hip hop. I think it is more an announcement of Public Enemy as the group that is going to call attention to these injustices going forward. Marvin Gaye, at the time that he released that album, was frustrated by a number of personal hurts, his brother's stories from Vietnam, his the death of his artistic partner, Tammy Terrell. There were a lot of other things that went into the pain that is articulated in that album. There's climate justice in that album. There's a lot of things that are, are articulated there. But with regards to the lyricism in Takes a Nation of Millions, that's strictly simply about racial justice, but also about public enemy itself. And I think there is where it fits within the tradition of hip hop. You know, the tradition of hip hop is to, in some ways, boast about oneself, to announce oneself. And in that regard, there is a need for us as especially black men in that medium, because unfortunately there were not as many black women, to announce ourselves in a world that continually beats us down. And I think that is something you see a lot of in this album. You see public enemy saying, we are here and you are going to hear a lot more from us. And another notable looming influence is, of course, the Nation of Islam's controversial leader, Louis Farrakhan. And Jamil, I was wondering what role did Farrakhan play in Public Enemy's world, and how does that look 30 years on? Uh, unfortunately, he played a little bit too much of a role. Um, I say that because he certainly influenced, you know, the politics of members such as Professor Griff, certainly the aesthetics of the group, but they weren't unique in that regard. I mean, this was eight years before the Million Man March that this album came out. Farrakhan was seen at that point as a mainstream civil rights figure. So I wouldn't say necessarily that they could be, I would say, forgiven for embracing Farrakhan at that point. However, you know, certainly I think that it's something in retrospect that is a blemish. I guess, in their history. But I think that with regards to Professor Griff, I mean, you know, he's not really a part of the group anymore. And I think Chuck D has effectively distanced the group and its politics from all of that. So I just think that as long as the group makes sure that its lyrics and its speech are distanced from Farrakhan and his anti-Semitism and his other controversial stances, I think it's for the best. So is it telling that this record rose to number 15 on our list in the same year that saw the Black Lives Matter movement become bigger and more global than ever before? I mean, I think it's difficult to necessarily say how relevant it is, per se, because I think it's personal. To me, it's relevant. It's relevant because it lies at the foundation of my radicalism. For people of a certain age, where it came out at a point at which they became awakened, or they were becoming aware of the injustices of the world and how they needed to become a part of reversing those injustices. I think it remains foundational. But there are other people who work to reverse those problems who may not even like it. <laughs> and that's fine. I think that it's to each their own. I think that it can inspire who it needs to inspire. And I think that's the foundational point of art. We need people who can be inspired by Bob Dylan, and we need people who can be inspired by Public Enemy, and we need people who can be inspired by Bruce Springsteen, and we need all of them to come together to fight as one, period, because they have a common purpose, but they may all have separate inspirations. And that is what America is about.
of Millions to Hold Us Back ranks number 15 on our list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, which you can read in full on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music. Next week, Taylor Swift's Red. I look back on this as like, this is my only true breakup album. Every other album has flickers of different things. But this was an album that I wrote specifically about like a (laughs) pure, absolute, to the core heartbreak. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Nathan Brackett, Christian Horde, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Emrys Eller, Michelle Lands, and me. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Hannah Murphy. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker, Kenton Brombot, and Ryan Reddington. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Our theme song is by DJ Shadow, who also made our 500 Greatest Albums list. Hey, listeners, it's Will Arnett. Our podcast, Smartless, has crossed a milestone that seemed unfathomable when we started nearly four years ago as we've just released our 200th episode. Join us as we welcome that dynamic duo of hilarity, Steve Martin and Martin Short. You've seen them on screen together in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, and most recently, and Only Murders in the Building. Both are comedic geniuses in their own right, but together they are always electric. And this episode of Smartless is no exception. I don't know if I've laughed more in a single episode than this one. We discuss their career arcs both separately and as a comedy team, how they met, who is more difficult to work with, and what motivates them today. Is Steve a better banjo player than Marty as a singer? Find out on this bicentennial episode of Smartless. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Plus, you get to hear Sean cry. What a loser! What a loser!